Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill, a church that meets in the Milwaukee, Oak Grove, and Gladstone area just outside of Portland, Oregon. We gather in person and online every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. If you're listening to an audio-only version of it, then the chances are you've downloaded it via Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. We also have video versions available on our website, faithonhill.com. That's live stream only. And then it's always available on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash faithonhill. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at at faithonhill. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor here. I want to just say a quick word about the idea of online church. At Faith on Hill, we've kind of taken a middle-of-the-road approach in how we view online church services. Some churches and some Christians believe that you cannot have church meeting in any other setting than an in-person meeting. We don't agree with that. However, some Christians and some churches feel that just watching a sermon on TV or on your phone or listening while you're having a a jog or something is the same as being a part of an active and, and vile church experience. We also don't agree with that. We believe that when we had to meet online only, we still met. And we believe that we're meeting right now. But we also believe that you still have to make the steps to be active and and connected in the family of Jesus. So, can you be online and still be having church? Absolutely. But if you're disconnected from the family of God, this is an invitation to be connected. We'll have an online small group starting soon. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com with questions. Uh, We have a chat feature on the video. If you want to email me, adam at faithonhill.com, and we can talk about ways to be connected even if you don't feel comfortable uh, being in person. And that's totally understandable. There's no judgment here. If you feel comfortable being in person, we have an in-person meeting. If you feel uncomfortable, we have online options. If you're on vacation, you know, know a lot of people watch online while they're on vacation. These things are all valid, in my opinion. What is the, the main thing to focus on is having an active and vibrant connection with your brothers and your sisters who are all followers of Jesus. We're going to be studying the book of Jude this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And at the end of our time together, we're going to spend time praying together as a church. Well, today and next Sunday, we're going to study the book of Jude. It's one of the shortest books of the Bible. Um, It's one of the least read books of the Bible. That's what we're doing right now. We're going through a journey of the 10 least read books of the Bible. Why is Jude the least read? It's honestly the same reasons as as other books. It's towards the end of the Bible. It's a bit obscure. It's short. Um, I would add to it that it has some question-raising verses. And if we don't If we don't want to deal with those questions, then we can just skip on and focus on things that are more easily understood. Um, So instead of talking about those as we go through it, what we're going to do is this week, I'm going to do sort of an overview of the life of who Jude is. And then at the end, I'm going to kind of go through some of the random questions that the book of Jude forces. And then next week, we'll go through it in a more traditional Bible study and see what it actually says. But I want to read this week Jude 
Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God and the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already knew all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies and reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things that they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are the wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the black the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, verse 15, to judge everyone and convict all of them of the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness. And all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him, speaking of God. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. And these are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends... By building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. 
save others by snatching them from the fire. To those who show mercy mixed with fear, uh, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. And I say amen to that. All glory be to Jesus. But today we're going to talk about Jude, who is sort of a mystery man in the Bible. What's Jude's story? Well, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew that Jude is one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Jesus' family appear throughout the Gospels, but in Matthew's Gospel, they're actually named. The, the brothers of Jesus are given names. And we're told in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, that Jesus' family, including his mother at that point, were opposed to his public ministry. Jesus was going around from town to town preaching the good news of the coming kingdom of God. And it says that his family, his mother and his brothers came to put him in line, to take him home. They thought he had gone crazy and they had come to, to take him back home where he belonged. So you're the half brother of Jesus and you're opposed to the ministry of Jesus. And you grew up with all of the baggage that comes with being the half-brother of Jesus. What do, what do I mean by that? Well, think about this. You might remember in one of the Gospels where Jesus was speaking to them about the Father, to, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they say to Jesus, we know who our Father is. And the, the implication of that phrase is about Jesus' parentage. Because remember, Jesus' mother conceived while still a virgin, unmarried. And the implication was, we know your story, Jesus. You know, your mom fooled around with somebody, got knocked up, and Joseph, you know, he felt sorry for her, or he really did love her despite the fact that he had cheated. So, uh, you know, he took her in even though she was pregnant from another man. Or maybe Joseph and your mother fooled around. And back then, I mean, in our day and age, right, there's no, no qualms or questions about that. But we understand in that culture, that would have been a huge deal. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not implying in any way that, that God's standards for biblical sexuality have changed in any way. I'm just speaking of a cultural situation. And so they're basically saying, hey, Jesus, we know who our dad is, but you're illegitimate. And they're putting him down and they're knocking him and they're, they're questioning his parentage. Now think about this. If you are one of the half brothers of Jesus Christ, you grow up your whole life in that village hearing the rumor and hearing the little slights and the little digs about your mom because of your half-brother. Your whole life, you hear of, of these little comments, these little innuendos. So many families, right, have family secrets. 
So many families have dysfunction. And in Jesus' case, he is blameless. Mary and Joseph were blameless before God. They had not sinned. But that doesn't mean that the rumor still didn't fly. Have you ever known somebody who was completely innocent and yet the rumor and the accusation still goes against them? And it would be easy to see why his brothers, his younger half-brothers, would resent him. And then he goes and does this thing that was unheard of in their society. If you were the oldest brother, then you have an obligation to provide and be part of the family. Jesus' earthly foster father, Joseph, dies at some point. And so it would have been Jesus' responsibility to provide and care for his mother and his younger sisters and brothers. There's some thought that the reason Jesus waited to start his public ministry might at least in part be just waiting for the younger siblings to grow up and therefore fulfill the obligations to them. I can't say that's speculation, but it's an interesting thought. And then he goes and he leaves and he begins to go throughout the countryside preaching And so not only do you very realistically, it's very reasonable to assume that there could have been resentments already in place, but now you're Jesus's younger brothers and your older brother has left and you feel like you've been left holding the bag. And who wants to hear from their brother? To me, that's part of the story. People say, I want God to speak to me. Who is it that God could be using to speak to you that you don't want to hear from? Who wants to hear from their older brother the message of God? Who wants to hear from their children a word of correction or rebuke from God? And you say, well, that's not the place. Children are to honor their mother and father. Yes, I agree with that. But does that mean that a child especially, or an adult child can't speak forth the word of God and say, this isn't right. I've known children who have done that. I have known children. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I have known children, teenagers, depending on the situation. Some have been actual kids. Some have been teenagers. I've known children who have spoken the word of God to their parents, who have, who have said, what you are doing is not right and then they have gone and gotten the liquor bottle out of their, their dad's you know, cabin or wherever he stashes it, and they've, they've dumped it down the drain in front of them. What a brave thing to do. I know a 15-year-old girl who did that. I've known children whose parents have started to speak about divorce, and the children have said, what you are doing is wrong. This is against everything you have taught us about what God says. I, I, heard, I heard about... Uh, 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 guy in high school who had to do that, you know, his, his parents were talking about splitting up and he, he, he just was like, that is, that is wrong. You have no grounds. You have no grounds to do it. Maybe it's the other way. I've known people who just, their parents tell them something and it's like, you know what? I know that your parents can be rough to hear, but what if they're the ones God's using to speak to you? And there's all kinds of division in our world right now, old and young. Literally this morning, I was in a meeting and I was the youngest. I was one of, out of 10 people in the room, I was one of three people under the age of 50. I was the youngest guy in the room 
And, and so it's fair to say that uh, generationally, the opinions expressed were not that of my generation. And so one guy was very adamant about something and I said, well, okay, but you have to understand that in general, people in my generation not only don't agree with you, but, but believe the opposite. And, and it's not about one being right or one being wrong, but are you willing to listen to us? And sometimes we won't listen, you know, millennials, okay, boomer. What if a boomer's trying to speak to you, millennials? And then, you know who's obsessed with millennials? Boomers. And you know who loves to rip on millennials? Boomers. What if God wants to use a millennial, a millennial like me? I don't know. But but somebody to speak to you. What if God wants you? What if you're really liberal and God wants to use a conservative to speak to you? What if you're really right wing and God wants to use a progressive to speak his truth into your life? All of these things, I just think about that. Jude did not believe. Who lived closer to Jesus than his brothers, his own family? And yet Jude and his brothers and even Mary, his mother, rejected him in those days. Who is it that God would speak to us through, but because of our own issues, we won't hear it? But here's the good news. Once Jude believed, he got going. After the resurrection... It says in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus' mother and brothers were there with the disciples and with other faithful people waiting in that upper room for the Holy Spirit to descend. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, had gotten to her senses. There was a point in the Gospels where Mary thought Jesus had gone crazy. We're told that in the Bible. But she came to her senses, and by the time Jesus was crucified, she was there, and she was faithful. After the resurrection, his brothers believed. And we're told that in Acts chapter 1. And then once Jude believed, he got going. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us that he and his wife traveled as missionaries. They went around preaching the good news of Jesus. And it wasn't just, hey, this is some guy I knew. My brother, my half-brother, was God in human flesh, and he died and he rose again. That was what Jude was preaching. Now, somebody might say, well, wait, he doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus which I consider a humble thing that neither James nor Jude identified themselves directly as the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the brother of James. And you say, well, wasn't there a James in the the disciples? Couldn't he be one of those? Yeah, but that James's brother was named John. And that James died real quick. He was the the first of the apostles to be martyred. Uh, So the book of James was not written by James, like Peter, James, and John. And Jude identifies himself with the James who was leading the church in Jerusalem. And we see that in Acts 15 and several other places. So once he believed, he got going. He didn't believe during Jesus's earthly life and ministry, but once he believed, he got going. The first question was, who would God speak to you through that you might be ignoring? But the second question is, or it's not really a question, it's a statement. Your start does not determine your finish. Hey, just because you became a Christian later in life, and we have several people at Faith on Hill that became Christians later in life, that does not determine how you end. Think about my friend Bill Spies. Uh, Bill became a Christian two weeks before he died. But in those last two weeks, he didn't just sit there and wait for heaven. 
Anyone he talked to, anyone who came and visited him, he talked to about Jesus. How he ended was not determined by how he had began. And just because, hey, you know what? I didn't take my faith seriously for a long time, but now I I really do. That doesn't mean that the previous time will determine how you spend the rest of your time following Jesus. Just because Jude believed later, it doesn't mean that he was any less useful to God once he got going. That to me is such an encouraging thing. You, you might think, man, I was late to the game. I should have figured this out a long time ago. Sure. I wish I'd started following Jesus even sooner than I did. And I've followed Jesus most of my life. But once Jude got going, there was no stopping him. And there's a lot of people who start strong and they finish badly. There's a lot of people who, you know, maybe you were like that. I was really strong in my faith then. I was really committed to Jesus here. The question isn't about the times of strength in the past, as wonderful as those might have been. Are you strong in the Lord now? Are you given to Jesus now? You could start real strong and end real bad. I'd rather start a little later and be like Jude and end strong. Your start does not determine your finish. Now, the thing about Jude, and you might have picked up on this as I was reading through the book, is that the big idea of Jude that we'll get to next week is really a word about false teachers and standing firm in the truth. That's the primary message of the book of Jude. But you might have noticed that he's just throwing out, it's like this, or it's like that. And this thing happened, you're like, wait, what? Michael was arguing over the body of Moses with Satan? What's going on there? If you play video games, you know what a side quest is. Side quest is, you know, you're playing the main game and the objective of the game is to, you know, save the kingdom, rescue the princess, uh, get this thing or take this thing and bring it somewhere. There's a main objective, but then you go to some level or some village and while you're there to kind of make the game more interesting, they'll put up a side quest like, hey, by the way, I lost my uh, my favorite shoe. If you find that shoe, bring it back to me and you'll get a reward and that's a side quest. And so sometimes video game players, they'll, they'll play and they'll just do finish the game. And then after they've beaten the game, they'll go back and they'll do all the side quests. Or sometimes they'll play all the side quests first. And then after they've beaten the game, they'll, they'll go back and try to do it without the side quests and get through as quick as they can. That makes the game more interesting. Uh, you might also notice this in, in just your reading books, right? Like sometimes in a, in a, a novel there'll be a chapter. It's like, what does that have to do? It's just kind of a interesting side story, but it doesn't really advance the main story. So to me, these are like the side quests of Jude. Um, These are the little like the little tangents that he throws out there. And you're like, wait, what's going on? What's going on? And so instead of getting bogged down in them, I just wanted to address them. And then next week, when we go through the book of Jude in a more traditional Bible study, then we won't have to deal with them. So the first side quest I thought of is we believe that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, who was also the half-brother of Jesus. But some Christians, primarily Catholics, believe in what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. It is exactly like it sounds. They believe that Mary stayed a virgin after Jesus' birth. And there's different reasons why. So I wondered to myself, what do Catholics believe about Jude? 
did some research. The standard view is that James, who wrote the book of James and who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, um, you know, 10 to 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, was not the half-brother of Jesus, but rather he was somebody else. Usually um, they, they say that he is uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, who's uh, numbered with the apostles. And so therefore Jude must have been his brother. Now, that's not what the scripture says. Um, and so the idea that Jude and James weren't the brothers of Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph's sons, but the idea that, um, that they were somebody else, why would they believe that? All of us bring our own baggage into our Christian experience, and all of us have our own experience, and then we project it onto how we read the Bible. Everybody does that. Um, there's a book out there which I, I'm not like 100% recommending. I think it's an interesting read, but it's also I have disagreements with things in it. But there's a book called Reading the Bible Through Western Eyes that talks about this, how we live in our Western, uh, American, modern experience, and then for good or bad, we project it onto how we read the Bible. All of us do it, or all of us are at least in danger of doing it, and something we have to watch out for. Why is it that you would believe that Jude is not the half-brother of Jesus, even though Mark chapter 3, verse 21 lists Jude as one of the brothers of Jesus? The reason would be that you already believe something, and then you have to make everything else fit around it. If you believe that all flesh is sinful, and all human interaction and all human sexuality is inherently sinful, as some have taught over the centuries, then the idea that Mary would stay a virgin might be important to you. So you believe this thing, so then you emphasize it, and then you have this inconvenient idea that Jude and James are the, the half-brothers of Jesus, so you've got to get rid of that. The scripture multiple times talks about the brothers of Jesus. Not the cousins of Jesus, not the friends of Jesus, not the disciples, but speaking of his family, his brothers. But if you already have an idea, then you have to find a way to get rid of that. And everybody does this. Everybody projects their idea onto the scriptures. And so all of us have to question and have to filter uh, it's one of the reasons I like inductive Bible study, because inductive Bible study, which is observation, interpretation, application, forces you to at least try to come at things with a fresh lens. Hey, what does this say? Um, you know, it just says this. Instead of saying, this is what I already believe, that's interpretation, or this is what I already live by, that's application, and then I'm going to project that onto the Bible. If I start with observation and say, this is what it actually says, now I'm going to try to build my interpretation and then my application off of that. Here's my observation, what it actually says. Here's my interpretation, and then I'm, that's what I believe, and then here's my application, how I live, and it's all going to be built off of that. It's not the only method for reading the Bible. It's a method that I think is very good. So, if you grew up in a Catholic background, it might surprise you to hear me say that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. I believe that's what the Bible says. 
Is it something that I would break fellowship with somebody over? No, not particularly. This, this to me is not something worth dividing over. But the process matters. The process matters. And at least all of us, if nothing else, we can have an awareness that I bring my own perspectives and baggage and issues to how I come at the Bible and how I come at my Christian faith. And if I'm aware of that, then then I can be aware of the downfalls potentially of that. The second side quest is, what does the book of Jude say about how we got the Bible? And what do I mean by that? Well, you might have noticed two things that stood out. He says that Michael the archangel was arguing with the body, uh, arguing with Satan over the body of Moses. Remember Moses, the Ten Commandments, you know, he, he delivered the people. And depending on your age, you either remember it with the Charlton Heston movie from the 50s, or you remember it from Prince of Egypt, the cartoon when you're a kid that had that great song uh, with uh, Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. That's what I remember about uh, Prince of Egypt is just, I love that song. Um, and to be honest, I love anything with Whitney Houston. Fun fact. But where in the Bible does it say that when after Moses died, Michael the archangel argued with Satan over the body of Moses? It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It does talk about it in a book, a non-biblical book called The Ascension of Moses. And then later on in verse 14, Jude says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. When did Enoch prophesy? I mean, you can read the genealogies in the book of Genesis and you can see that there was this guy Enoch. But when did he prophesy about these guys? Well, again, there's a non-biblical book of Enoch. One of the brothers in the church asked me recently, like, wait, I read the book of Jude because he went and read the 10 least read books of the Bible when he heard we were doing this. And he said, what's going on here? And we were talking about it. And uh, knowing that this was coming up, and in general, I've been personally re-examining the idea of how we got the Bible. And I got a stack of books sitting on my desk uh, from, from all kinds of different perspectives and PhDs and research and everything. Here's, here's my best take on that. What Jude is doing is he is quoting known literature that would have been known by his audience. And you can, you can kind of work out that uh, we know from tradition that Jude primarily ministered in the area that we would now think of as uh, Israel or Palestine and Syria, that kind of Middle East area. And his primary audience might have been Jewish believers. And they would have been familiar with these books. The same as, quite honestly... There are many, many, many non-Christians who have read the Chronicles of Narnia or who have read Tolkien. And so if you uh, want to talk about the gospel, you might know, hey, you're a big fan of Narnia, right? You know, and then you start to talk about the allegory, Aslan's like Jesus and the whole thing. Or maybe you quote a very good Christian book. It's not the Bible, but it's a good book, you know, um, whether it's, you know, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, which is a favorite of mine, or it's Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, which is another favorite of mine, or something modern like Purpose Driven Life or something like that, right? There's nothing wrong with those books. Are they the Bible? No. But are they good books? Sure. So it, Jude is just quoting well-known literature. Now, I will say this. 
I am more confident than ever in how we got the Bible. And I'm happy to have a conversation with anyone about how we got the Bible. I also, like I said, I have a stack of books. If you want to borrow a book from me, let me know. Um, The Bible wasn't written by a bunch of guys who got together in a room 400 years after Jesus. That's just one of the most frustrating stories that goes around. Because if you believe that, it's just because you haven't done your research. There are books that people said, should this be in the Bible? Should it not be? It was kind of questionable. And that was something they had to work through. I will say that the book of Enoch is one that like Bible scholars, they'll talk about. And it's like, okay, the book of Enoch, book of first Maccabees, second Maccabees, great books. They shouldn't be in the Bible. And and here's why. And here's how our decision matrix for how we came to that conclusion. But they're good books. Uh, In the, after the New Testament was written, there were other books like the Shepherd of Hermes that everybody's got kind of a positive take on. It's not the gospel. Uh, there's another one called the Di- uh, Diashi or the uh, the Teachings of the Twelve. Um, I own a copy of that. It's a great book. Should it be in the Bible? No, but it's a great piece of Christian literature. So Jude's just quoting well-known literature to make a point. By the way, he's not the only one. In the book of Titus, Paul quotes a Cretan uh, a philosopher from the island of, que- of Crete. Paul was uh, well-read and well-aware of non Christian non-biblical sources as well. And so I don't think there's uh, any harm in that. Next side quest. How much of the Bible do I need to know? Because maybe you were reading through that and you say, man, there's a lot of Bible quotes in here. He's talking about the rebellion of Korah. That's kind of obscure. We need to know as much of the Bible as we can. The Psalms say, your word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. We need to know as much of the Bible as we can. The last little side quest is this. Jude talks about those who God delivered from Egypt, but then he destroyed those who were not faithful. He talks about people who are in the church, but their judgment is coming. Can I lose my salvation? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that you are going to do that's going to make God stop loving you. There is no sin that you can commit that is not that is greater than the work of redemption and healing that Jesus did on the cross. That being said, there's a lot that can threaten my love for God. Remember I said at the beginning, it's not how you start that determines your end. There are people who are in the church who are not Christians. Just a couple of days ago, I read a testimony from a guy who started coming to church in high school, then went on, became a pastor. For 16 years, he was a pastor at one of the most influential churches in our state. And at year 16, he became a Christian. There are people in churches, in leadership, and in just the average church-going person who are not Christians. And so though you are in the group, so to speak, You're not in the kingdom. And there are people who seem to have had a strong beginning to their faith, and then it just seems to have gone south. And I don't believe that anything has changed with God, but I do worry for them. And I I would say that if you are somebody or you know somebody who has just walked completely away from following in the path of Jesus... I don't worry about God's love for you. 
But I would be very concerned, very concerned for your soul. Not because my salvation or your salvation is based off of what I do or what you do. It's all based on what Jesus does. But I have to choose to live in that work. So I never worry about like, I'm going to do something and know I need to get saved again or baptized again because God's going to stop loving me. But I worry greatly that something in apathy, something would set in and I would walk. I want to keep myself in the love of God because it's not how I start, it's how I finish and I want to finish strong. You know what? I don't know where you're at in your life, but I know that God's love for you is unchanging. And I know that the more of the scripture that I get into my life, the more I know of how much God cares for me and how great the plans are that God has for you. And the more and more we get closer to Jesus, the less concerned I ever am about the idea of losing my salvation. And the further and the further that you are from Jesus, the more that you need to know that he is still reaching out after you. Let's pray together. Well, now that we have heard from God's word, I believe that God has been speaking to us. Even through a foolish guy like me, God has been speaking. And it's up for us to respond. So would you join me in prayer? And I want to invite you to feel free to hit the pause button. If we begin to pray about something and then I move on, but you need more time, hit the pause button. Keep praying and then unpause and rejoin us. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you that you have made the way for salvation. Thank you that you pray on behalf of all believers, that you go before God the Father and intercede on our behalf. Thank you that you have sent the Spirit of God to empower us for life and victory and power. Lord, we begin in acknowledging your greatness, your holiness, your perfection. Lord, I ask for any hearing my voice who do not know if they are forgiven, if they are in the family of God. I pray as they cry out to you that you would assure them of the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection to save us from all sin. Lord, I pray for any who feel distant from God, that your spirit would draw them close right now. And if that's you, know that Jesus hears your prayer. Lord, I pray for family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers who grieve our hearts when we see them walking in darkness, that you would shine your light in their life. Lord, I pray for any need, anyone with a financial need, anyone with a spiritual need, anyone with an emotional need, anyone with a physical need, any who need wisdom, any who need grace, I pray that you would provide fully and abundantly. 
Lord, for those who hurt this week, for those who doubt this week, I pray that you would show yourself in your love and your gentleness. And we thank you, Jesus, that you always hear our prayers. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. New episodes of the 20-Minute Bible Study are released on our uh, audio feed, Apple Music and Spotify, and on our Facebook page. If you want to know about some of the Old Testament references, uh, we've been talking about them in the book of Exodus. We also have small groups restarting soon. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. And we're meeting in person and online every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. God bless you.